Noah, thank you for the reminder, too, that the baptism is not a representation of going from bad to good. It's a representation of going from death to life, and only Christ can do that. Go ahead and open up your Bibles to Exodus chapter 8. We're continuing to walk through the book of Exodus together. We are in the midst of the plagues right now. God's currently striking Egypt with plagues, each worse than the last. His purpose is, of course, to deliver his people out of slavery, but also to make a name for himself. He's showing them who he is. And so we've seen several themes develop as we've walked through these plagues. God is judging and showing his power over Egypt, but also over the Egyptian gods, the small g gods. Each one of these plagues is an attack on their gods. And also, we've seen this theme of Pharaoh's heart becoming harder and harder. And we've been reminded several times that this is part of God's plan to show who he is. Now, today we're going to cover the next two plagues. We're going to look at the gnats and the flies, little bugs, fun stuff. And in this, I want you to notice a few things. A couple new themes start to emerge. First of all, I want you to notice that now these Egyptian magicians that have been able to replicate the, the first few plagues, no longer can they do that. In fact, this time they tell Pharaoh, okay, this has got to be the finger of God doing this. And then secondly, I want you to notice how in the fourth plague, God protects Goshen. That's where the Israelites live. And that's going to be significant. We're going to wrestle with a tough question when we get to that section. But first, let's pray one more time, and then we'll dive into this, this chapter. Father, once again, we, we desperately need you right now to invade our hearts with your Spirit, that our eyes would see your glory in this, and that our ears would hear your truth in this, and that our hearts would believe that truth and rest in your love. Apart from you, we cannot do this, so I plead with you now. Help us. Help our hearts believe. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, picking up in verse 16, we're going to break this up into a few different sections. We're going to take a look at the first Uh, of our plagues, the third plague, which is the gnats. So pick up in verse 16 with me. Then the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and he struck the dust of the earth. And there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. And the magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. And so there were gnats on man and beast. And the magicians said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. So the first thing that you might notice about this plague is that there's no warning given to Pharaoh. Jumps right into the plague, right? And what I want you to understand, there's actually a pattern going on here that you might not notice unless we point it out to you. Scholars often group the first nine plagues into triads or groups of three based on how the plagues are being announced. And so the first plague in each one of the triads, and so plague number one, plague number four, and plague number seven, God tells Moses to go and meet Pharaoh down by the Nile River. The second plague in each one of these triads, and so number two, number five, and number eight, God tells Moses to go into Pharaoh's court to meet with him. And then the third plague of each of these triads, number three, number six, and number nine, the plagues just come unannounced. 
And so that's where we're at in this third plague. And so I think there's a reason for this pattern. We're supposed to see this pattern, and God is telling us something in this. And I think it's to show us there's an escalation that's going on. Between each one of the triads, there's a significant escalation that happens in the plagues. They keep getting worse and worse. And so today, in the third plague, you already saw that the magicians are no longer able to, uh, to perform these miracles and, and match what God is doing. And so they say, this is the finger of God. Well, in the fourth plague, when we get to that, you're going to see that it seems like God is using his finger to draw a line between the Egyptians and the Israelites. And the Israelites are no longer going to have to experience the rest of the plagues. And so I think that's significant. The first triad, it's a bunch of annoying things, right? The second triad, the second group of three, it gets into like the death of the livestock and boils on all of the Egyptians. And then the third triad is even worse, and it culminates in a an unannounced darkness that can be felt, which is really a foreshadowing to what's going to come in the 10th plague, which is almost like one triad compacted into, uh, a whole triad compacted into one plague is all the firstborn are, are dead. Now, let's talk a little bit more about this third plague. Okay, so Aaron strikes the dust of the earth. Where have you heard that phrase before? Perhaps in Genesis, okay, when God is talking to Abraham, and he, he gives him these great promises, and he says, I'm going to make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can also can, can be counted. And so the obviously, you can't count the dust, right? And that's what this phrase means. It means to show a vast number that cannot be counted. And so when God turns the dust of the earth into gnats, that's an uncountable, I mean, it's just ridiculous amount of gnats everywhere everywhere. And we don't exactly know what these gnats were. The King James Version actually translated as lice. Uh, gnats is an English term that is really generic, just means small insect that bites uh, with wings. And so it could have been mosquitoes. I know when I was in South Carolina a few years ago, we were going fishing, we got attacked by what they call noceums. And there's just swarms of them down there. And some of you have not in your head, you've been down there, you've, been, you've experienced this. And I don't know exactly why they call them noceums, maybe because no one can see them. I, I, I don't know, but you can definitely feel them. In fact, in South Carolina, they said, we just call them flying teeth, is what they call them. And so I, I don't know what it would have been like to be in Egypt in this moment. I can definitely say it would have been very annoying. And, and gnats, every, I mean, every time you breathe, you're breathing in these, these insects into your nose and your mouth. I mean, you're just surrounded by this cloud of gnats. You can't get away from it. You can't escape. It's miserable. Even the magicians throw up their hands. We give. Pharaoh, this is the, this is the finger of God. In, in other words, we can't replicate this with our, our secret magic. Uh, and again, God is making himself known through this. Now, now the magicians are starting to recognize, okay, this is the finger of God. But even the magicians that Pharaoh have, they can't even convince Pharaoh to change his heart. His heart continues to get hard just as the Lord had said. Now, this brings us to our fourth plague, and we're going to break this down into two different sections. The first section, we're going to see the confrontation between Moses and Pharaoh, and you're going to see the plague of the flies. And then in the second section, you're going to see Pharaoh trying to negotiate terms of the Israelites' release. Okay, so pick up in verse 20 with me. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go, that they may serve me, or else, 
If you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses and the houses of, of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus, I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow, this sign will, shall happen. And the Lord did so. There came great swarms of flies into the house, house of Pharaoh and into his servants' houses. Throughout all the land of Egypt, the land was ruined by the swarms of flies. And so again, the fourth plague, once again, is, is the first of the second triad. And so God tells Moses, go meet Pharaoh down by the Nile. And again, we have a warning of this plague. There's going to be flies everywhere. Possibly this is an attack against uh, Uchit, the, the fly god of Egypt. Uh, we don't know that for sure. We don't know what kind of flies these are either. Uh, perhaps they, they're uh, like big uh, like horse flies or, or, or something like that. Perhaps they were biting flies since Moses says that they ruined or devoured Egypt. I know if you've ever had a fly infestation in your house, you, you know how annoying it is, how, how loud the flies can get as they're buzzing around everywhere. And again, we see the increase in intensity. We started out with small gnats, now we have larger flies. Thankfully, for Isra the Israelites, God spares them from this plague and the rest of the plagues. And, and I really want to camp out here because I think that this is significant. And notice the reason that God spares them. He says that so Pharaoh would know that he is the one doing this. I mean, it would have been a really strange sight to walk through Egypt and see swarms of flies everywhere except for like this imaginary invisible wall where Goshen was and no flies in that area. This is in the heart of, of Egypt. God is leaving no doubt that this plague, this sign, this miracle is from him. And the Israelites are his people. So the magicians, they don't even attempt to try to replicate this one. And God is making it in, he's very clear that he intends to treat the Israelites differently, which I think is really significant. And so we see from here on out, the Israelites are spared from the wrath of God. They will not experience the plagues like the Egyptians. They will not lose their livestock. They will not be afflicted with boils, their crops will not be destroyed by hail or locusts, their firstborn will not be taken by the angel of death, they will not be drowned in the depths of the Red Sea. Why? Because they're God's chosen people, his elect, his children, his beloved. In Deuteronomy, I think we're going to put this up on the screen, Deuteronomy chapter 7, starting in verse 6, and I'm only going to read verse 6 right now, but in this passage, Moses is recalling God's electing of Israelites, of the Israelites. And he says, for you are a people, saying this to the Israelites, you are a people holy or set apart to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. We're going to come back to that passage here in just a minute. But before we do that, I want to wrestle with a really important question. I want you to think about how would you answer this question? Does God love everyone? Does God love everyone? How would you answer that question? Well, I think if we asked most people today, they would probably say, yes, of course God loves everyone. 
But then I think you need to ask the question, okay, how do you know that for sure? How do you know that God, how do you know who God loves? Well, if you look out into nature, if we're honest, I think we get some mixed messages, right? I mean, you look out in the creation, yeah, you absolutely, you see beauty, you see glory, you see life, you see a lot of good out in creation. But if we're honest, we also see within creation what seems like just undeniable brutality and senseless suffering. And so you can't look into creation and, and nature itself to for sure know that God loves everyone. Okay, well, maybe you just say, well, I just know. I just feel it in my gut that God loves everyone. It just feels right. Well, again, I mean, Buddha may encourage people to follow their hearts, but God's word definitely does not. Let me just give you two examples. Uh, Proverbs 12, 15, the way of the fool is right in his own eyes, but he who heeds counsel is wise. Again, Proverbs 14, 12, there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Think about it. Adam and Eve, they followed their gut. Did not end well for them, right? And so we can't really know for sure that God loves everybody by looking at nature or just following our instincts. For us to know whom God loves, God has to tell us. He's got to reveal it to us. And that's exactly what we have here. This is God's love story, right? It's not in some kind of bullet point list. It's in a story that goes from Genesis to Revelation. It's God's love story. And what we learn from this love story is that God's love is actually very complicated. And, and, and we learn from this story that God does love everyone, but not in the same way. Let me explain. So Matt McCullough actually wrote a book that I, I read this week, a very short book, but he wrestles with this question. And in the book, he breaks down who God loves. And he starts with just the very foundation. Okay, God loves God. Right? So we know from John, 1 John 4, 8, that God is love. And so at the core of who God is, he is love. Before the creation, when there was only God, God was a God of love. And so before he had anybody else to love, he loved himself. And McCullen rightly points out, okay, God's love for God seems a little bit selfish until we consider that he's three persons in one. He's the Trinity. So God the love for the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There's a perfect, eternal, beautiful love bef between the Trinity. Okay, secondly, God does love everyone in this sense. God didn't create the world because he was lonely. He didn't create the world because he needed to fill some kind of void in himself. He was already perfectly happy. He was perfectly content. He's self-sufficient. He didn't create. I'm good. I'm good. Thanks. He didn't create us because he had to. He created us because he wanted to. God's creation is an overflow of his love. And so in poetic language, in Genesis chapter 1, you see him creating. And after every single day, what does he say? It is good. It is good. And then at the climax of his, his creation, he creates us, humans, in his image. And he says, it is very good. And so in God's eyes, every human... Made in his image is very good. Not an accident, not a mistake, we're not a disease on our planet, but an object of unique delight. And this is why we are pro-life from conception to the grave. This is why racism and abuse and neglect in any form cannot be accepted. All humans have a dignity that is built into their DNA because we are made in the image of God. 
Now, the problem, though, is that our love story has got a heartbreaking tragedy in it, right? Adam and Eve, the very first humans, they failed to trust God's love for them, and, and they chose to rebel. If you think about what sin is, it's a failing to trust in God's love for us and that he knows what is better or what's best for us. We think we know better than God, and so we rebel, we sin. And sadly, all of us have done that. All of us have followed Adam's lead. All of us have sinned. But the good news is that God loves sinners. We see that very clearly in the scriptures. God created us for love. We rejected his love. And that could have been the end of the story. Could have been like flood, everybody's done. But thank goodness God shows the depth of his love. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Think about John 3.16, one of the most famous passages in all of Scripture, right? For God so loved the world. Now think about that word world, and I'll come back to it here in a second. That he gave his only son that whoever believed in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now, when we think of the word world, we typically think about the size of his love, that the, his love goes throughout the whole world. But if you read the rest of John, John almost always uses the word world not to talk about the bigness of the world, but to talk about the badness of the world. He, when, when John refers to the word world, he refers to us willfully rebelling against him. That's what he's talking about when he's talking about the world. And so in John 3, 16, we see the depth of God's love towards sinners, that God loved the world, the rebels, the sinners, that he sent his son to pay the penalty that they deserve and rescue them. And so God shows his love by redeeming a people that wanted nothing to do with him. And this offer of salvation does go out to the whole world. So God loved everyone, even sinners, but he does not love everyone in the same way. It is only whoever believes in him, who believes in Jesus, who will not perish but have eternal life. And so there is a special love that God has for those who trust in Jesus. Now, if you're a Christian, let's not think that, okay, this leaves us in a place where we can boast about that, right? We need to re remember Ephesians chapter 2, which makes it clear that there's no room for bragging. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. This, this faith is a gift from God so that nobody can boast. So even the faith that we're saved through is a gift from God. See, the overarching story of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is God setting apart a unique people to redeem. They're uniquely his and uniquely loved. See that in Genesis chapter 12 as he takes Abram and promises him that your family is going to grow into a great nation that's going to be a blessing to all nations. And then here in Exodus, we see God keeping his promises, making a clear distinction, setting apart the Israelites and sparing them from his wrath with a, a love that is distinct, a love that is discriminative, a, a special love. And that same language is carried over into the New Testament as uh, Paul describes the church, the, the relationship that God has with the church is a love relationship. Paul opens up his letter to the Ephesians and he says, he, he praises God for setting his love on the church. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace 
which, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Later on in that same letter to the Ephesians, Paul describes this relationship between the church and God as the love that a husband has for his wife. And I think that's a really helpful illustration because I think about my own life, and, and there's, there, there's many women that, that I love in my life, right? I love my mom, I love my daughters, uh, I love my sisters in Christ, but there's a special love that I have for my wife, a discriminative love that I have for my, life, for my wife, and I don't love any other woman the same way that I love her. And that's how Paul describes God's love for the church. It's a, a discriminative love. It's a special love that he has for us. I think it's, a, it's important to ask the question, why? Why does God love his people this way? And so we go back to Deuteronomy chapter 7 to answer this question. And so we read verse 6 already, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The, the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasure, treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Now we need to read the next two verses though to understand why this is. It's, he says, look at verse 7. It's not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all people. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. This is huge. So why does God have a special love for the Israelites? And why does God have a special love for the church? It's not because the Israelites or the church are any, there's nothing special in them, okay? It's not that they were better looking. It's not that they were larger in number. It's also not because they were better at behaving, okay? It's not that they were good and the rest of the world was bad. In fact, we're going to see a theme through the rest of Exodus. The Israelites were not good people, okay? They constantly forgot God's grace. They constantly were disobedient. They were constantly running after other gods, to worship them. They lacked gratitude. They wanted to go back to Egypt after they were rescued. But God loves them. Why? The text just says because he loves them. He loves them because he chose to love them, because he is God and he is free to choose. Out of all the people in the world, he's free to choose them. And it says he made a promise to Abraham. And he always keeps his promise. Listen, God's love is not a contest for you to win or a status for you to earn. It is a gift that you receive. Let me say that again. God's love is not a contest that you win or a status that you earn. It is a gift that you receive. And it comes only through the gate that Jesus Christ opens for you. The good news is that Jesus, in love, he satisfies the wrath of God. He protects you from the wrath of God by paying with his own blood what you owe. He died in your place. And when God opens up your eyes to see that and to believe that and trust in him, the righteousness of Christ is now declared on you. And you become God's special love. God's special love is now poured out on you. Your sins are completely forgiven. You're adopted as his child. There is nothing that can separate you from his love. That's Romans 8. 
And so that perfect, steadfast, eternal, unending love that God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit share with one another, you get swept up into that. And that belongs to you. That is good news. That is so good. This is the love that we are invited into in Christ. And when you are in Christ, this is the love that you rest in because nothing can take that away from you. So yes, God does love everyone, but he does not love everyone the same. All right, one last really important lesson that we get from the end of this chapter, the second half of this plague. Pick up with me back in Exodus, verse 25. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and, and said, Go, sacrifice your God to your God within the land. Okay, this is him trying to negotiate. You can, you can go ahead and sacrifice, but you need to stay here. But Moses said, nope, can't do that. <laughs> it would not be right to do so, for the offerings we shall sacrifice to the Lord our God are an abomination to the Egyptians. And Moses would know this. He grew up in Egypt, right? If we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? Notice Pharaoh doesn't argue with that. He's like, yep, you're right. And so Moses says, we must go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he tells us. God cares very much how we worship him. Verse 28, so Pharaoh said, I will let you go to sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness, only you must not go very far away. Okay, so he's like, you can go, but just don't go very far because I want you back. <laughs> and then he says, plead for me. And again, we see Pharaoh recognizing that he can do nothing to take these plagues away, to take the wrath of God. And so he pleads with Moses to be the mediator. He says, plead for me, pray to God for me. And so then Moses said, behold, I'm going out from you, and I will plead with the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people tomorrow. Only let not Pharaoh cheat again by not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. And so Moses went out from Pharaoh, and he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord did as Moses asked, and he removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people. Not one remained, but Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also, and he did not let the people go. There's only one thing that I want you to see, and one, one thing that I want you to notice from this section is that there is no negotiating with God, okay? There is no negotiating with God. He demands perfection, perfect obedience. He demand, what, he, you can't bargain with God. You can't meet God halfway. There's no quid pro quo with God. He demands perfect holiness, which means apart from Christ, we have no hope because all of us have sinned. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. None of us are righteous apart from Christ. And this is why communion and baptism should be precious to us. Because it's a visual reminder that Christ is righteous. And when we trust in him, his righteousness is now declared our righteousness. And we are forgiven of all of our sins. And so today, as we move into a time of communion, I really want you, don't just go through the motions, okay? If you're a believer, we encourage you to celebrate with us. And I, I, this is, if, if you don't know what communion is, this is what it is. It, it's, it's Jesus gave his disciples, this is a reminder of his sacrifice. The, the juice represents his blood shed for us for the forgiveness of sins. This is him reminding us that he paid the penalty that we deserve. 
He died the death that we deserve. He, the, the bread represents his body. And he breaks it and he says, this is my body given for you. And so this is a wonder, wonderful reminder of what Christ has done for us. We need to be reminded of this often. This is why we, we share communion so often. And so today... Once again, if you're uh, a visitor with us, if you're a believer, uh, we would love for you to celebrate with us. Uh, this is also a time for you to just get alone with God for a, for a moment, confess your sins to Him. Uh, this is a, a time also if you need prayer, you're just feeling overwhelmed by life, I'll be in the back. I would love to pray with you. Uh, if God's working in your hearts right now and, and opening up your eyes to see the significance of the gospel, I would love to celebrate with you during this time too. And so don't leave today uh, until you've got a, a chance to share that with 